Lord Jesus, we took time at the beginning of the service, God, to quiet our hearts, to invite you in, uh, God, in hopes of not missing what you're doing. We have, we have sung praises. Uh, we have lifted up prayer requests. Lord, would you just continue to bless us with your presence this morning? Uh, would you bring your word to life? I think of Acts 4. Your word is living and active because you bring it to life through your Holy Spirit. And God, we ask that you do that this morning in our midst. Uh, this is not good thoughts that I have, but that this would be you speaking to the hearts of your people. So Jesus says always, may you increase and I decrease this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been working through Mark, uh, the book of Mark at a breakneck pace. And so we are in Mark chapter 10 uh, this morning. And uh, we're just going to jump in. We're going to start in verse 13 uh, and just start walking through a couple stories. So uh, Mark 10, 13, some people were bringing little children to him, him being Jesus, so he might touch them. But his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid hands on them and he blessed them. This is a pretty common occurrence with Jesus. We've already in the book of Mark, I think this is the third time that we've dealt with it, where Jesus is somewhere, and as the crowds and people are coming, as he's teaching, children start coming to Jesus. Some of their own accord who just see Jesus and run to him. Some, as parents bring them and kind of present them to Jesus, will you bless my child, will you pray for my child, whatever it may be. But it's a common occurrence that the children come to Jesus, and an equally common occurrence is that the disciples try to stop them. Again, this is not the first time we've read this story, even just in the book of Mark. The children come, the disciples get in the way, whoa, 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 not you. Back, back, back. And so I, I want to ask a question, and one of the things we do here, if you're newer, uh, is we actually talk. Uh, we, this isn't just a time where I stand up here and read some things and you sit and nod your head, though I hope it helps me if you do nod your head. I, I do appreciate that. But that this is a dialogue that we actually talk and learn from each other. And so I want to ask a couple questions uh, this morning to get us started, and I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear uh, us kind of learn from each other. The first question is one we've asked before and kind of discussed a little bit. Uh, the second one is one we haven't talked about yet. So the first one's a little bit of a softball uh, for some of us, and the second one will kind of go a little deeper. So the first one is this. Why were the disciples in the habit of stopping the children? And, and notice I say in the habit, because again, this continually happens. Why were the disciples in the habit of stopping the children from coming to Jesus? What are your thoughts? Just shout them out. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're much like our culture today. There was probably an overlooking of children to a point, maybe even to a greater degree, you know, than we have today. Uh, and so the disciples were stopping them because, hey, th this isn't for you, you know, kind of thing. Why else? Why were the disciples in the habit of stopping the children? We don't, we don't have a verse that tells us specifically, so this is kind of us reading into it a little bit. Yeah. They had other priorities. That's not the purpose of this time. You're, you're just kind of wasting his time and maybe by extension our time. Why else? Is that it? That's okay. The disciples are in the habit of stopping kids regularly. Maybe because, again, yeah, they're just kids. They're, they're not worth the time and effort. They're not who we're here to focus on. Who has ever gotten famous or powerful or whatever from focusing on children? I, I can name Mr. Rogers, and that's about it. You know what I mean? And in their time, they didn't have PBS yet, so it wasn't the fast track to becoming well-known, wasting, quote-unquote, wasting your time with the children. And so was that it. You are dating yourself. And I will gladly date myself and say I've never seen an episode of Captain Kangaroo. So I, I, I'll trust you on that one. But yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask this question then. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, quit it. I like kids. He doesn't just say, no, no, no. It's okay. They're cute. Let them come to me. It's a good photo op. You know, Nothing like that. Jesus actually says something very profound. He says, don't stop them. First, he says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he says, I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so this is where things go a little deeper. Because again, Jesus just wasn't going, hey, I don't like it when people ignore kids. Though I'm sure there was a piece of that. Jesus was going, you're missing it because the kingdom belongs to ones as these. And in fact, if you don't accept or receive the kingdom like a little child, you'll never enter it. So there's something much deeper happening here. What does it mean to welcome the kingdom of God like a little child? This is a much deeper question. And sometimes we have where Jesus gives kind of a hard teaching and then he pulls his disciples aside, and we get a peek behind the curtain where they go, Jesus, what does that mean? And he goes, okay, let me explain it to you. We don't have that here. Jesus kind of makes this really profound statement, again, on who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't, and then he just kind of moves on. The disciples are probably scratching their heads a little bit, and honestly, for years as I've read this, I've scratched my head. What do you think it means to welcome the kingdom of God like a little child? enthusiastically, and they're all in. Right. Yeah, yeah. Little kids are all in. There's no half measures with small children. They love it. They hate it. They're in, they're out. So there's this commitment to it that's a big piece of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kids do have a very unique ability to believe simply because mom or dad said so. Simply because, oh, that's just how it is. I mean, you try to explain things to them and 
trying to explain something to a small child, you have to actually know something really, really well to be able to explain it to a small child. It's really hard, but you find that in the end, they don't really need to understand all the ins and outs. They'll have questions. But a lot of times, just because you say so, they go, okay, that's how it is. That's the way this works. David? Who's preaching here, David? <laughs> Do I come to where you work and steal your thunder? No. Just, no. That, how much more should we be willing to just receive what the Father says as true? You know what I mean? Like, he's a way better father than any of us in here, guaranteed. How much more should we be willing to receive it? What else? What does it mean to receive, to welcome the kingdom like a little child? I think there's so many facets to this. I don't think Jesus just had one single point in mind. I think there's so many different facets to this. They depend on the parent, right? Yeah, kids are pretty aware. I don't have a job. I have no concept of money. Food just appears in the fridge. Thanks, Mom. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're very dependent, and they know it. That's a huge piece. Anything else? There's, there's a joy to children. Uh, there, hmm. this, is a, this is a whole other message, but sometimes like when it comes to the kingdom, we're like, oh yeah, I understand that. that. That is a deep thing. And we get very solemn and intellectual about it. And like, mm, let me tell you what I know. And here is the way, you know, whatever. And I think sometimes if I was not a believer and I heard sometimes the way that we talk about our relationship with Jesus, we talk about the kingdom, we whatever, I would go, doesn't sound like you're very excited about it. Doesn't sound like you really enjoy it. It almost feels like more of a weight. But when kids receive something, again, part of that all in, part of that, there's a joy, there's an enthusiasm that comes with it. Are you kidding me? We get to do that? That I think oftentimes we can be missing as adults because we're too serious. We've got it two together. Sometimes I wish they had a little more fear, but yes, kids can have no fear, and it's, it's ready, fire, aim 
oftentimes with them, again, because they're so quick to latch on and to believe uh, that oftentimes we lead with doubt. I think oftentimes children lead with belief. That's good. Anything else? Yeah, there's a simplicity, is what David was saying, with kids. Again, they don't have to know, have it all figured out to the nth degree. If you say it's true, then that's how things work. And there's a beautiful simplicity to it that oftentimes I think could be applied to our faith. Not that we turn our brains off and we don't seek deeper truths, not that. But again, do we start with a, if the Father says it, it's got to be true, now let's figure out how. Or do we start with a, until you prove it to me, I'm not moving you know, kind of faith. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah, kids can live to invite people in to what they enjoy. They almost can't turn that part off. We as adults have learned to turn that off quite a bit. Brian? There was, there was no uh, political or influential gain for Jesus from inviting the children, for pointing out, for making the children actually the model for what it is to receive the kingdom. It's not like that won him political favor or whatever because kids were so valued. Again, they were seen as a waste of time, yet they're the ones that Jesus said, man, if you're going to learn anything, learn from these kids. Linda? Yeah, there's an, there's an innocence uh, to little kids. There's a, uh, an ability to probably see God in a way that those of us who have grown up and we have chosen sin so often, there's, a, there's almost a, a dirty lens that we view God through. And we have such a distorted view at times where children in their innocence probably have a much clearer view of who he is than we do. Again, and some of that simplistic, some of that joyful, whatever it may be, We've overcomplicated things as we've gone through life and been wounded and, and chose rebellion and all these different things. So that's good. We'll come back to this um, here at the end, but I just kind of wanted to get, get those ideas going. Because again, I don't think there's one singular point Jesus was coming at. I think he's going, man, when you just look at what a child is, there is so much we can learn about what it is to receive the kingdom. So we'll, we'll come back to it. So it's just kind of a quick little story. It's those four verses where Jesus kind of slaps the disciples' hands. And actually, it says he gets indignant with them over stopping the children. And he tells them, actually, you need to learn from these children. The way that they receive the kingdom is the way that you are to receive the kingdom. He lays his hands on them. He blesses them. And then we move into a very different kind of story. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, 
What must I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your mother and father, or your father and mother, excuse me. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. In Luke's account of this story, Luke refers to the man to kind of set the stage as a rich young ruler. And probably in your Bible, that's probably what it says above this little story, is the rich young ruler. They're just trying to set the stage to go, this isn't just any guy coming up. This is a powerful, influential, wealthy man coming to Jesus. And, and look at the way that he comes to Jesus. He comes up and he calls him good teacher. And it says that he kneels down before him and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's showing reverence for Jesus. He would call him rabbi, which meant teacher. And he kneels before him. He seems to be doing all of these things right. Like I would think that's the way that you approach Jesus, right? You come up and you recognize like you are the good teacher and you, you kneel before him you're greater than me. How do I inherit eternal life? He seems to be doing everything right, but Jesus asks him a question. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. Jesus notices something in this man's heart. Je Jesus has the gift of discernment through the Holy Spirit, and he's able to kind of see deeper than, than just the words that are coming out. And he sees that the words you are use, that you're using don't match what I see in your heart. So he tells him, no, no one is good but God, almost to say, do you really believe that I'm God? Because that title that you used would kind of put me on, on level with him. Was that just words or do you really believe it? But almost like, it's okay, we'll get to that in a moment. He just moves off of it really quickly and he goes straight into you, knew the, you know the commandments. How do I inherit eternal life, teacher? Good teacher. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus gives him the answer that he expects. He gives him the Ten Commandments. If you go to a Jewish rabbi and you ask them, how do I inherit the kingdom? They're going to tell you, probably even today, the Ten Commandments. You, you uphold the law. You do the things that God said back then. Jesus gives him the answer that he expects from him. But it's, it's funny. Jesus has never given this answer to anyone else. In all of the other people that approach Jesus in the Gospels, he never tells them, just follow the law. You know the law. Just uphold the Ten Commandments. He doesn't tell them that. Like, think of like Nicodemus in Matthew chapter 3, who comes to Jesus and asks him the same question. How do I inherit the kingdom? And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. And they go through this whole thing of being, being born of the Spirit and, and this new life that comes. Jesus didn't look at Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, and go, Ten Commandments, bro. Just follow the law, duh. Jesus tells him this kind of spiritual answer, yet Jesus looks at the rich young ruler, and he gives him the answer he expected to hear. Just follow the commandments. 
And Jesus has a way of doing this at times, giving people the answer they expect, even if it's not the right answer, to draw out what's in their heart. There's another passage that we've already looked at over in Mark chapter 7. This woman comes to Jesus to ask a question, and he gives her the answer that she expects, but watch what it does. He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We talked about this when we read this a couple months ago. We go, whoa, Jesus, harsh. You just called this woman a dog. You just told her, get in line, wait your turn. And we go, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Certainly not the Jesus we heard about in Sunday school. And it can be like, whoa, why, why would he say that to this woman? Why wouldn't he just say, of course, like he did to everyone else? But Jesus was giving this woman the exact answer that she expected. Because every Jewish rabbi saw any Gentile, which is a non-Jew, as less than a person. And if you were a Samaritan, you were considered a half-breed, and they literally called them dogs. And so Jesus tells her, is it right to give the children's bread to a dog? This is exactly the answer that she would have expected from someone. But he doesn't do it just to be mean. He gives what she expects to draw out what's in her heart. How is she going to respond when she gets that answer? And her response is beautiful. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply... You may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and that the demon was gone. Jesus had a way of giving people what they expected, but to reveal what was in their heart. She expected harsh treatment, and Jesus went, I'm going to give her that to bring out the faith that's in her heart, to put it on display, because maybe she doesn't even know that it's there, but watch how she responds. When she gets the answer she came expecting, probably even fearing to get. Why would I give the children's bread to a dog? She said, even dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. And this is one of those times where Jesus says, because of your faith, go. The faith that was revealed in your response has healed your daughter. Go. What we find here is a very different response to the answer that this man expected to get. He knew when you go to a Jewish rabbi and you ask them, how do I inherit the kingdom? They're going to tell you, follow the Ten Commandments. He knew that. And his response, he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. I am so glad you brought up the Ten Commandments, Jesus. I'm really good at those. I have been knocking those out of the park since I was a kid. This is awesome. Think about the ridiculousness of his statement. For 1,500 years, people had been trying to live up to the Jewish law and failing miserably. God would continually uh, bring other nations against them for their refusal to follow the law, and it was just too heavy. People couldn't do it. Yet this rich young ruler looks Jesus in the eye and goes, nailed it. That's it? That's all I have to do is carry the entire law? 
no problem. This man didn't see himself as coming to the king, coming to the Messiah, coming to God, and saying, Lord, how must my heart change? This man was coming to a teacher that maybe could add a little something to something that was already pretty great. He was coming to Jesus looking for an attaboy. I'm going to ask him how to inherit the kingdom of God, how to inherit eternal life, because I know his response is going to be, follow the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to get to stand there and go, nailed it. Done it. In the hopes that he would go, wow, everyone, look at this guy. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus gives him the answer that he expects, and pride and self-righteousness come out. Do we really believe that this man has perfectly honored his father and mother his entire life? That he has never told a lie? That he has never bared false witness or anything like that? Like, of course not. We know ourselves and we know that that's not true of him. But his pride, his arrogance, his self-righteousness are revealed. He had come to get an attaboy and what he got was something very different. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Oh, just one? What, it's probably a small thing. Go ahead, Jesus. What is it? Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Before we get to the rich young ruler's response, I don't want to miss something. At the very beginning there, Jesus loved him and said to him. Jesus was not dropping the hammer in this. Jesus was not going, you arrogant little, who do you think you are? Jesus was not trying to crush him. Jesus loved him. And out of love gave him an incredibly hard truth. This wealth that you have, it's killing you. It's keeping you from the kingdom. And if you truly want to inherit eternal life, go and sell it all and then come follow me. This was not some gotcha moment. This was Jesus truly trying to love this man. What you have is killing you. Get rid of it and then come and follow me. And understand, there is only 12 other times that Jesus told someone, follow me. And that's the 12 disciples. This man was actually getting an honor that we don't see in the rest of the Gospels. What we see is people going, hey, Jesus, can I follow you? Like after he heals them and whatever. And he tells them, no, no, no. Go back to where you're from and, and tell them what's happened. Lift up God's name back where you live. But this man, he actually gives an incredible invitation. Get rid of this thing that's killing you. And come follow me. Come and be one of my disciples. But the man is stunned and grieved. And he goes away broken. That was not what I came looking for, Jesus. I came looking for, you're killing it. Just keep on keeping on. What a guy. And what instead you gave me was the hardest teaching I've ever heard. And he went away because Jesus wasn't worth the cost. Jesus was not worth giving up everything. So he went away. His heart was revealed to Jesus, but probably most stunning, to himself. He had probably never had to look at this before. 
There's a decent chance as a rich young ruler, he probably was born into a powerful house, already had money, and as he grew up, he was probably surrounded with yes men and servants and every other kid that he would have played with probably worked for his dad or whatever, and so he would have just gotten, you're awesome, his whole life, and he'd believed it. And now Jesus puts him in a position where he has to look at his own heart and go, I just asked, how do I inherit eternal life? He told me, give up things in this life, and I said no. His own lack of faith was revealed to him, and it was stunning, and it grieved him, and he went away broken. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't tell everyone, go sell everything you have if you're going to follow me. But he looked at this man and he said, truly, like he answered his question, what is keeping you from inheriting eternal life is your wealth. And if you're unwilling to part with that, you're unworthy of following me. And that's a hard truth. He was trying to teach the principle that kingdom life isn't easy, especially for the wealthy. Especially that, that for those who feel like they have something to lose. It's easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Think about that. Camel. I probably can't even get as tall as a camel. The eye of a needle. They, they would have heard this and gone, Jesus, okay, hyperbole, you're being ridiculous. But he said this, it can't happen. Camels don't fit through the eyes of needles. It doesn't happen. There's a story that was created hundreds of years after Jesus said this, that said that there was actually this mountain pass called the eye of a needle, and it got pretty narrow, and it was pretty tough to get a camel through uh, this pass called the eye of a needle, and that's what Jesus was referring to. It's difficult, but not impossible. We'll read here in a minute why that's bunk. Jesus was telling them, it is impossible for a rich person, a wealthy person, to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So again, more time for conversation here. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Why is kingdom life so difficult for those that possess wealth? It's difficult for everyone, but Jesus kind of makes a distinction here and goes for the wealthy, for those that have an abundance, it's even more difficult, maybe even impossible to live kingdom life, to enter the kingdom. Why is it so difficult for those that possess wealth to live kingdom life? Yeah, yeah. It's easy for money to become an idol, a false god in your life. Uh, Jesus teaches at one point, and he says, look, um, you can't serve both God and money. You're going to pick one, and you're going to hate the other one. And, and how divisive there. He, says, he even says at one point, money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is not a one-off teaching by Jesus. He goes, wealth is an incredibly dangerous thing because we have a way of uh, idolatrizing it. Idolatrizing it. Somebody was starting to say something back there. Um, you know, a lot of 
Yeah. It, it's when you can call your things by name, it's even harder to give them up. It's one thing to kind of, in theory, give everything to Jesus. It's another thing to give this that I really love to Jesus. And so just having those things can be really hard. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, kind of back to the children piece that we talked about in a dependence thing. If I have wealth, I don't really need to depend on God. It was interesting. Um, I heard somebody teach you one time just about like American culture. And this is not a down on America or whatever thing. But they were saying some of these things we read about in the scriptures. And it's so hard for us because we, we think like the, um, the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. That's a weird prayer for us because I've already got a week's worth of bread in the pantry. And if it runs out, I'll go to Walmart. They always have bread. Like, so it's kind of a weird prayer for us, but for, for them, it was legitimately like, either you show up, God, or I go hungry, you know, kind of idea. But for the wealthy, I could always meet my own needs. There was always a way to do it. Did I really need God? Was I dependent on him? What else? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing that we have to understand. This isn't actually about money. Like, it's not. It's about the heart. It's about the rich young ruler's heart. It's not like God has this magic number in his mind. And if you have more than this, uh-oh, it's about your heart. Uh, Jesus teaches another point where he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And how, how tightly do we hold on to our wealth? If God is calling us to give to the poor, to spread the wealth around, are we willing or is it, no, but it's mine, you don't understand? Because understand, every penny we have comes from him anyway, right? We already prayed that earlier in the service. It's a blessing and a gift from him. The question is, what do we do with it when we receive the gift? Does it become mine? Mine to hoard and to hold on to? Or do I live open-handed? He gave it to me. I'm completely dependent on him. So Lord, where do you want me to spend it? You want me to go on vacation with my family and enjoy it? Thank you, Lord. You want me to sacrifice and give over here? Thank you, Lord. What do we do with it once we get it? Money isn't actually the problem. It's what our hearts do with money. The, the reason that Jesus teaches about money so often is because money has a way of getting our hearts. Understand, Jesus isn't trying to get anything from you. He doesn't need your money. He can make his own. Like, you get that, right? But he wants to keep your money from getting you, from holding you back, from capturing your heart. Because here's the tricky thing about money. The two things that are taught on quite a bit in the scripture, money and sex. And here's what they have in common. We can trade them for a whole lot of things that our heart needs. They represent what we can turn them into. You like stature and being new and shiny and out front? Guess what? Money can get you that. So just sell out, go for money, and you can be powerful. You can have the newest, the best, the what it looked like you have life all together. Money can get you that. Is security what your heart truly desires? 
just the safety of knowing that no matter what comes tomorrow, I'm okay, money can do that for you. In, like, as someone already said, in the very short term. We can turn money into that. And this is how money becomes a God for us, is because we think, we believe, that we can turn it into anything our heart needs. If I just have enough of it in the bank account, no matter what happens, I'm okay. If I can just have enough new and shiny, I'm okay. If I can just have so much that people will finally respect me, I'm okay. And it's idolatry. And this is where the rich young ruler was. And so Jesus gives that hard teaching and then tells his disciples, it is utterly impossible for the rich to receive the kingdom of God. And, and look at his disciples' response. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? If, if he couldn't be saved, if the rich young ruler, the guy who had every blessing that God can pour out, that's how they would have viewed him, if he isn't worried of, worthy to follow you, as powerful and as righteous as he was, what hope do any of us have? You can hear the hopelessness in their voice. Then Jesus, who can even be saved? What you're saying is impossible. And he agrees. Looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Camels don't fit through the eyes of needles. There is nothing a man can do to make it happen. But Jesus says, good news. You serve a God that shrinks camels. You serve a God that grows the eyes of needles. You serve a God that changes the hearts of men. You serve a God of miracles. It is impossible for you to release your grip on money. For you to release your grip on the things of this world is impossible. But praise the Lord, I do impossible things, Jesus would say. I can change your heart. I can loosen your grip on wealth. I can fit a camel through the eye of a needle, and I can lead a wealthy person into the kingdom of God. And if they can be saved, Jesus would look at his disciples, how much more you? This would have been incredibly encouraging news for them. We serve a God that shrinks camels, grows the eyes of needles, and changes the hearts of men. So Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. I assure you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields with persecutions, fun little add-on, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So, so Peter and the boys, they're hearing all of this. And Pete says, but Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. We've actually done the thing you told the rich young ruler to do. What does that mean for us? And Jesus says, don't worry. The Father sees your heart, and he will reward those who follow his lead. Your sacrifice doesn't go unseen. Your desire to follow wherever I lead is not unseen and will not go unrewarded. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, a lot of people call it. It's just story after story of the men and women of God selling out for what God has called them to do. And, and you see incredible acts of faith and heroism. And it starts with this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Peter essentially said to Jesus, we're seeking you with everything we have. We've given it all up. We walked off of our parents' boats with nothing in our hands and just followed you wherever you led. We've given up everything for you. Does that count? And Jesus says, your father sees your faith. You are earnestly seeking him and you will be rewarded with the very same eternal life that the rich young ruler was seeking. Your heavenly father has that waiting for you. Those who earnestly seek me, you will be rewarded. And then Jesus puts this little tag at the very end that he, he uses quite a bit in scripture and it had to at some point in time had the disciples scratching her head. Why does he keep saying that? But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The, the disciples, they kind of keep needing to hear this because remember all the way back to the beginning with the children coming to Jesus, they were going, no, 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 Jesus, these are the dregs of society. No one cares about the kids. They're valueless. Don't waste your time with them, Jesus. But then the rich young ruler comes, the one who is prominent, who is respected, who gets everyone's attention. And Jesus turns him away. Doesn't turn him away, but puts him hard, hard teaching to the man turns away and welcomes in the children. The first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is saying, look, remember the kids at the beginning? Things in my kingdom don't work like they do in the kingdoms of this world. Do not get it twisted. The rich young ruler is out, but the children are in. And the disciples would have had to, again, they're putting this together. They're starting to see these things. The reason that, that Mark, who is telling Peter's story, put these two stories next to each other is he's going, these are actually intertwined. The children are in, the ruler is out because the first will be last and the last will be first. What the world says is valuable is not valuable in the kingdom. The kids are in, and, and the, the disciples at some point in time would have gone, but what have they done to earn the kingdom? Jesus said the kingdom belongs to them already. What have they done? But the rich young ruler is out. Look at all the rich young ruler brought to the table. All that, have, could, have, all that could have been brought to bear for the kingdom. Look at all of the resources, the power, the influence. If we could have got that guy on our team, think of the respect that that would have gained us. Think of how many people would have listened to the message now. Think of how much more resources we've had to go even further out there. But he's out and the children are in. Why are the children accepted and the ruler is out? Could it be, and it's something we've already started to touch on, that the children knew that they brought nothing to the table? The children were aware Jesus isn't welcoming us because he could really use us because we bring something to the table, they were aware we come empty-handed. We offer you nothing. We know it, and we're just excited to come anyway. And Jesus welcomes them and says, the kingdom belongs to them. They came fully aware of their emptiness and their dependence on their father. In verse 24, Jesus refers to his disciples as children. And the word that he uses there is interesting. Children doesn't just mean not yet adults, small people, young ones. The word children there in the Greek actually means those willingly living fully dependent. Those who come knowing their hands are empty 
and they're dependent on God. And that's how Jesus refers to his disciples. They didn't even understand it yet, but he goes, you are coming like children, empty-handed. You've left everything. You bring nothing to me that I need from you. You know it. You know you're dependent on me. And that's why you will receive the kingdom of God. The ruler was convinced that he was bringing something Jesus needed. Whether it was his wealth, whether it was his righteousness, look at everything I've done, now praise me, Jesus. That was the the heart of the ruler, and he missed it. But the children and the disciples came knowing, I am fully dependent on the Father, and they were received. And they were promised eternal life in the life to come. I was reading through uh, the book of Romans this week, just in my own uh, personal reading, and I came across something in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, if you aren't familiar with it, is a really, really difficult chapter. Um, There's some hard teaching in there because it's Paul talking uh, to a group of mixed um, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being anyone that wasn't Jewish, and he's talking about why the Gentiles are able to receive the kingdom, but why are the Jews missing out? And there's some hard teaching in there, And towards the end, he says this. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved righteousness of the law. Why is that? Catch this. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, for thousands of years the people of Israel had been pursuing the righteousness God was calling them to as if they could produce it themselves. They could be good enough. They could be righteous enough, perfect enough, wealthy enough, whatever it may be. They could produce it themselves and they continue to fall short. And now they sit and they look, Romans was written about 30 years after Jesus died. And they're going, there are literally thousands of Gentiles who haven't done a single thing, who who haven't followed a single law, and they're receiving the kingdom? And Paul says, yes, because they receive it by faith. They come empty-handed and go, Father, thank you for the gift. I bring nothing to the table. I don't benefit you at all. Your kingdom didn't get better because I'm here now. I come a drain on you but trusting that you're a good father who actually delights to pour out blessings and good things on your children. And so the Gentiles are received, but Israel misses it because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. Children come in faith knowing they add nothing of value to the kingdom. They are fully dependent on their father's love and grace. The ruler came with his own righteousness and pursued the kingdom by works. Surely he had, he had done enough to gain entrance into the kingdom, right? He, he earned it. Jesus owed it to him, right? Look at everything he had done. And he goes away stunned and grieved. He stumbled over the stumbling stone. So let me close by asking you a few questions, and these are for you to ponder and to take home, to talk about as a family, to talk about as a small group. What is the stumbling stone in your path? What is the thing that you think Jesus owes you for? What is the thing that makes you think you've earned something from him 
You've been so good in this area. You've done this so right that Jesus owes you a paycheck now. Where is it, Jesus? What is the thing that in your heart makes you feel better than those around you? Makes you feel further along, makes you feel greater, higher than those around you. If they just had it figured out like you did, what is the stumbling block? We're called to receive by faith, not try to earn by works. Israel had been stumbling over the stumbling block. The rich young ruler stumbled over the stumbling block. Each and every one of us has a stumbling block in our path. What is yours? And then are you willing to lay it down and walk freely into the kingdom? Whatever that thing is that puts you in a position where now God owes you one, where if other people had it figured out like you do, maybe they'd, maybe they'd get the kingdom too, are you willing to lay that thing down and walk freely into the kingdom to just receive freely from the Father? Are you willing to repent, which doesn't just mean say sorry, which means to change. Repent means 180 degree change of direction. I was heading this way, now I'm heading that way. Are you willing to repent, to change, to receive freely from a good Father that waits to lavish his love? Check out 1 John 3, 1 sometime on his children. Or are you going to keep trying to white-knuckle it and earn your way in? Will you name your stumbling block? Will you repent of it? And will you receive from the good Father? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, none of us reads the story of the rich young ruler and goes, man, that guy, he had it all figured out. None of us want our stories to end stunned and grieved and going away empty. But God, our natural inclination is to live the same kind of life as the rich young ruler. Look at me. Look at what I've done. God, you owe me. May we learn to receive the kingdom like little children, fully dependent on your grace that you lavish on us. It is abundant. It is overflowing. It is more than we could handle even if we wanted to. Teach us to have the faith of a child, God. To receive from you by faith, not try to take from you by work. God, uh, would you through your Holy Spirit just speak to each of us, what is the stumbling stone in our path? What does it look like to lay it down, to turn from it, and to receive from a gracious Father? Lead us in this, I pray. This is a... God, this is such a pivotal issue. Would you lead us away from our idolatry, God, and deeper into the kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen.